This is Carlos. I'm here with Scott Sage on SeedCamp's podcast. And Scott is one of the EIRs that we have at SeedCamp. And he is an absolute great pleasure to work around as he's always full of great quotes and uh, amazing energy. But today we're going to channel that energy into covering some of the topics that he is most uh, passionate about, but also uh, things that he has seen pop up over his time working with startups as key uh, either inflection points for growth or key inflection points for failure. And we're going to do this as we did in the past with a chat that we had with Taylor over a series of different podcasts uh, covering all the different topics. We're going to talk, the topics we're going to cover are going to be internationalization, we're going to talk about sales execution, and we're going to talk about the talent gap. Uh, not necessarily in that order. These conversations, you never know where we're going to end up. But one thing we always do know is where we're going to start, and that is with the background of Scott. Now, before I hit the record button, we were having a really fun chat about Scott's history as an actor or, or, or you know, early days of his thespian yes. career and something about having to straighten your hair or something like that. Was that, was that where we that, were that talking about? That was not going to go into the podcast. That was yeah. not going to go. Well, look, yeah. at least you have hair. That's a good thing. <laughs> so maybe we can start off, uh, maybe skip that part of your life and go straight to college. What, 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 where did you study and what did you study? Well, I was meant to study music at the Berkeley School, which I had always wanted to be a musician growing up. I played percussion and, and piano and, and guitar. Can you beatbox? I can beatbox. Should we? Yeah. Should I do the bass? Let's, Let's hear it. That's it. There we go. Never, and, uh, never yeah. say there's a dull moment with, with Scott. Add a little xylophone into that. That would be nice. A little triangle. Cowbell. Excellent. So, um, yeah, you... Uh, so, so I wanted to be a musician, and against my parents' wishes, uh, they, they very heavily argued against that. My, my ideal was move to Boston play in four bands at once, lived there for a year, and then started studying at, at Berkeley. I ended up at Texas Tech, though, instead, and was studying finance, which is very different from the music degree that I thought I would study. And I got introduced to the world of venture capital actually when I was about 20 years old. I moved to New York and did an internship at one of the very first venture funds, which set up there called Dashboard Ventures. And this was early days of the internet. We were looking at like internet arbitrage models, early ad tech companies. And kind of got hooked on financing very young tech companies at that stage. But wanted to move to London. So after, after university, I moved to London for what was meant to only be a year at UBS Investment Bank. And through a whole series, which I, I will not bore you with here, I, I got stuck. So it's now been 10 years since I moved here. And I kind of, to be honest, I have a very, very bizarre background for getting into venture. Um, I, I did the, the corporate finance bit. I worked at a consulting firm for a while. I helped two companies, two startups. One was a, a music, a digital music publishing company called Espresso Music. The second one was was called Smarkets, where I was kind of the first non-technical hire. I was doing marketing and business development for them. Uh, so kind of a bizarre background. I was the, the last job I had, the, the last main job I had before uh, joining the last firm I was at, called, now called Draper Esprit was as a kind of strategist research manager at the BBCA. So I was running kind of regression models on trying to find correlations and causations between interest rates and public tech company after performance on, on you know, after IPO 
here in Europe and all kinds of interesting stuff. Because at that point in time, I thought I was going to go get my PhD in econometrics and be a kind of a math geek. But anyway, I, I started at Esprit about five years ago as an associate and was at that stage spending 90% of my time just sourcing deals, looking at big trends, attending conferences, all the stuff you do as an associate, and slowly started working my way up. And to be honest, I got lucky, I think, with some of the deals that I brought in. They, they went very well. And uh, so I got promoted a couple of times fairly quickly and probably ahead of when I should have. And ended as a as a partner at Esprit, where I was for the last two years. So I was leading investments, and I think the last two years I was there, I really tried to sort of specializing in a sector so I could become more value add to the companies I was working with. Mm. And so, really, by the end, I was only working with uh, SaaS companies, typically at the application layer, and a couple that were doing developer tools, and then marketplaces. And so, some of the companies I had the privilege of working with were Trustpilot. Conversocial, Bitbar, DataHug in the software SaaS space, um, List and Sport Pursuit and Ashika and the, the e-commerce marketplace side. And left earlier this year to come work with you guys at Seed Camp as an EIR and working on something on the side. And yeah, I'm loving it here. Cool. That's a very sort of comprehensive view of post-college years, but maybe we can go back and jump into some of those moments and I think what I'd like to do is is maybe explore the very first startup that you you work with, either as an investor or, or sort of in the capacity of analyzing it. And what were the things that, if you look back now with the eyes that you have now, you would have done differently when that's, you were working with them? That's really interesting. So I, I actually remember the very first company. I remember his name too. His, the CEO's name was Scott, and it was an Oxford-based company. When I had first joined Esprit, we were looking a lot at, at clean tech and green energy investments, both in the internet software side mm. and in the hard tech side. And I, I really struggled in the hard tech area because I, I don't have an engineering background. So I was looking at, you know, the, this deal was in the lithium ion battery space, unbelievable company. And uh, one of the board members was a Japanese guy who had actually created the technology for lithium ion batteries in, in the 80s out of Japan. And this was a company that was spun out, I believe, from Oxford University. And we, we had always believed that in the battery world, that it follows the, you know, Moore's Law. So every year, X plus one, increase in capacity or size or, or cycles. Anyway, this company kind of killed that notion and came in with, I think it was like a 30% increase gravimetrically in what the battery was able to do. And so spent a bunch of time analyzing it, working with the team, looking at the roadmap, and there was a, the biggest question was on business models. So do they basically license this out and start making money immediately and get to profitability pretty early? Or do they go all the way on the full stack, verticalize it, own the manufacturing process, the warehousing for you know, shipping batteries, et cetera? And they ultimately ended up going down the second, the second business model, which I think was the right thing for the company. But that then meant that we couldn't, we couldn't do the deal because it all of a sudden became a 25 million pound deal as opposed to a you know, 7 million pound deal. And in retrospect, I think what I, what I learned but didn't fully realize was the difference in incremental innovation and disruptive innovation. And in, and in reality, I think actually that was an incremental innovation. As much as I thought we should have invested still 7 million out of a 25 million pound round, I think it'll be a great company, it's a very sustainable company which will have very generous profits in due course with an amazing team, and I'm sure they'll have a great out a great outcome exit-wise. But it didn't have that component of being truly disruptive, of opening up a new market or 
radically transforming the market. Sure, they might enable Tesla to sell cars that are you know able to stay on the road longer mm -hmm. or make our computers smaller because the, the weight and the size of the, the batteries are much smaller. But that's, I think, when I first realized the difference and in, in incremental versus disruptive innovation, which I think is probably second nature to, to most investors now, but that was a good, a good is lesson it? for me. Is it? I mean, I, I think that I, I would contest that and say that we, we think, we're, we're optimistic that we know the difference between incremental and sort of disruptive. But when you're actually at the decision-making point, there's very few times when you actually feel categorically that this is going to be the next thing that's going to completely revolutionize that because most of the time there's a lot of substitutes and other ways that people yeah. get around it. So if you look back um, at the at the companies that you worked with, you know, you mentioned some names like DataHug and ConverSocial and List and Smarkets. Which one of those now with the 2020 hindsight would you say was truly like you knew it then and you know it now? I think um, List is, is, is a very interesting case study because... Our very first, I remember the first paper that I wrote, so Esprit led the, the Series A. The first paper that I wrote, the investment thesis was kind of 50% right. I mean, there was a big part of it that was social, and but the second part was about the data that they had created or were capturing kind of for the very first time. And I think we missed out on thinking even bigger, bigger picture in terms of it transforming away from the aggregate business model that Chris had built, the CEO had built day one into the ability for them to create a marketplace so that it connects end customers with the motto brand or the retailer directly and taking out the middlemen, these e-commerce these e websites. And I, I think it was only probably 18 to 24 months into the investment, Chris had been doing kind of re-validating re the market with a lot of his existing customers on the brand side, so the suppliers that, that would take a percentage of their sale. And he had this idea of actually, you know, we're, we're at a stage now where we're big enough to where we can create this universal shopping cart. And this allows us to create a much better experience for the end consumer and a much better business life cycle kind of pipeline-wise for the brands. And we're increasing the conversion and we're helping them to basically make more cash. And we they proved that through a bunch of A-B tests that they ran for aggregate, the, the aggregate model versus the marketplace model. And so in hindsight, we thought, you know, the, the initial investment hypothesis was we'll create, they will create a the world's largest site for e-commerce goods, and it was typically around luxury fashion products. And I think what we didn't fully appreciate was truly how disruptive that was going to be for the underlying model, both for, I think, online e-commerce, who's aggregating them already, and then uh, for for the for the actual mono brand itself. So take you're wearing a nice Patagonia gilet. <laughs> I think it's gilet season. Uh, Patagonia would love to have underlying data, the customer data of who's who's been shopping on list, what other products they were looking at, what time of day, what time of year, what colors, what sizes, and it opens up. What list does is open up basically the model to anyone in the world. So all of a sudden, Patagonia can now ship to consumers and let's let's say in Sweden more easily, directly from wherever their main warehouse could be or wherever a, a, a UK-based warehouse could be. So it's simplifying their back-end business operations and it's that, that's been an amazing company to watch. And I think it's mostly been because Chris and Seb, the two co-founders, have, have it's, a, it's one of those unique things where they always are slightly ahead of where the company is going and they're able to make sure that the company has everything in place to get there. So it's, and it's not just having the vision and, you know, knowing where you want to take the company. It's, it's basically 
being like six months to a year ahead of the company and allocating those resources properly. And a lot of, I think you see a lot of founders who are unable to make that transition and they're, it's more reactionary. And I, I haven't really been able to figure out, you know, psychologically what it is that enables some founders to do that and others not to do that. But those guys have been exceptional at, at kind of staying ahead of, ahead of the, the growth curve of that company. Well, we'll be talking about talent a little bit later. And so maybe we can sort of explore either yeah. you either have it in, in, within yourself as a founder or maybe you hire it in. So we can maybe come back to that. But would you say that List is pretty much a consumer business? It's, it's a consumer business in the sense that, you know, when, when, when you read about List in the press, it's, it's always about uh, the, you know, the 11,000 plus partners that they've signed up. It, it's effectively... This is the unsexy way of pitching it, but it's basically Google for fashion because it, it basically indexes everything. They have, I mean, one of the strongest artificial intelligence teams, uh, intelligence teams based in London and big around big data. So they're looking at, and a lot of this tech they've built in-house, it's really, it's spectacular. They're looking basically at, and, and you know, let's just say that they're adding several thousand products and images to the website every single week. So... In the old days, there was someone who would literally sit there and index, you know, yeah. black, Patagonia, gilet, shiny, male. Every single piece of that would be hand-coded by, by a human. Now when that comes in, sure, some of the product feeds are getting a little better from the supply side, uh, but we can, they can look and ind index an, an, an image and can automatically classify this. So they can be adding, in theory, if they wanted to, they could probably add hundreds of thousands of products every single day if, if they were getting that, that through. But I think the real transformative part in terms of what makes List disruptive is what they're enabling the mono brands to do. It's basically enabling them to sell their product to a wider target audience. That, in, in my opinion, is that's disruptive. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, solving one of the problems of non-consumption. There were people before who knew they wanted this product, but they couldn't find it anywhere. And that goes back to the premise of, you know, the, the very early models of, like, Net-a-Porter, you know, I remember you know, sister or girlfriend at the time making their first e-commerce purchase. That was like, women actually remember, I don't remember the first time I bought something online. It was probably a pair of like custom Nike shoes that I got to like design on my own. Mm -hmm. But uh, buying fashion online for a woman, having it show up three days later at her office was like a truly profound experience. And so they're just taking that to the next level by making sure everything from every store that they would ever shop at is able to be delivered to them mm. and, and synchronously kind of within you know, 24 hours now. So maybe maybe within that is why you've <coughs> taking taking an increased focus on on SaaS and marketplaces and, and enterprise, which is I know an area of focus that you're increasingly more keen on. Can you share with us a little bit more about if, if you were to look at businesses now, what would be the things that would make a business stand out for you? Yeah, I mean, so it, it always starts with, and especially I think if you're investing at the earlier stages, although this, this holds true for growth investors as well, but the team and the early product are the two things that I think matter the most. The, the hardest one to measure, the, always the hardest one to measure is the market. And this is, this is a problem here at SeedCamp because we're getting involved with teams that are you know, pre-seed, this is very early. They have a kind of hacked together product. And in most cases, they're, it's really good because we have, I think Europe's good at creating good mm -hmm. product designers that are good at getting to, to product market fit. Mm -hmm. And I think might have scale issues later on, but we can come back to that. In the US, I think 
a lot of investors look at product and market first and team last mm -hmm. because for them, so long as you can get with the initial founders, say to let's pick a software company, to 10 million annual recurring revenue, you have enough of a business there that it's all about them keeping the product good and how fast the market is growing. And those are two, to a degree, things you, you have control over. You can, to a degree, if you have the right people, you can control the product. The market's kind of outside of your control, so as long as it's fast and growing, then you've, you've, you've made the right bet. But having the right leadership, that's something you can control very easily. You can change that out. So I think in the U.S., especially with some of the very best funds that we know of, it's kind of a dirty secret, but they replace CEOs fairly, fairly frequently if the CEO is not working out with them. Here in Europe, I think uh, we probably are making slightly tougher decisions at the early stage because if we think the team won't pan out and be able to even get to the first three million ARR, I, I don't think we'll make the investments. And, and possibly some great iconic companies are maybe slipping through the cracks because people aren't taking those bets. But, but maybe we'll revisit that again when we talk <laughs> about talent and, and, and teams up. growth. Okay. I mean, I, I agree that at the pre-seed stage, it's, it's, really, it's, it's really hard to sort of know where some of these things are going to go. And, and that's to some extent why now we're doing seed investments as well. To, to sort of um, de-risk a little bit of how that team has gelled together yeah. and, and what they have produced out. So for those of you that haven't seen the blog post that we put out recently on, on the deals that we've done jointly with other funds, uh, that's an interesting one to, to look at. But okay, so now if we jump to the three areas that we were going to sort of focus on over the course of the next couple of podcasts. We, we mentioned earlier it was internationalization, sales execution, and the talent gap. Let's play roulette. Which one of those would you like to jump into first? I'll, I'll pick internationalization just because it's, it's my favorite right now, topic du jour. So let's see. If, if we were going to pick that one, let's look at the following questions. Okay. So why is this so important for startups? Mm -hmm. What does the best in class look like? Mm -hmm. When do European startups typically set up their first European office in, in, in the U.S. or abroad? Mm -hmm. What lessons have you learned doing this with Trustpilot? Conversocial, DataHug, and some of the yeah. other companies you've mentioned. Okay. Two, two seconds briefly on the why I'm interested in this. Yeah. Um, three years ago, I was on the board of a, of a company. Right after they had raised a round, I, I joined the board. It wasn't an investment that I, that I had led initially. And basically had realized that they had wasted a lot of money building out a team in the U.S. This is a, a European company. Building out the team in the U.S., building out a very large marketing budget in the U.S., and they had nothing to show for it. And when you drilled even deeper into uh, their SaaS metrics, you could realize that they didn't even have a uh, forecastable or repeatable sales plan here in, here in Europe. And so we, we made the very tough decision, ultimately, and actually, in my opinion, too late, to scale back on U.S. operations, retrench here, focus on getting everything in order, and then go back. And, uh, and that's actually helped the company and, and on the whole. But when I took a step back and tried to do a retrospective, I was looking around to see when does the average European company go to the U.S. or go abroad? When does the average U.S. company come to Europe? Who leads that process? How much money have they raised? What's the revenue look like? How big is the sales team? And all of these were questions I thought uh, there would be some data on the internet. And I was surprised to see there was absolutely nothing. I even read a couple academic reports which on the whole looked at technology companies, but a lot of these were service codes, and it was out of Germany. Um, interesting report, but nothing very good anecdotally for, for startups. 
So about a year ago, almost exactly, I started capturing data from public companies and I stuck with only B2B SaaS companies just because it was easiest to start with them. I, next year I'd love to do this for consumer companies. And basically I, 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 I have about 67, I think, public SaaS companies of which the majority are US based, a couple are headquartered outside of the US. And I looked at basically the split between their domestic revenues and their international revenues, how many employees they had, and the growth of revenues employees over time, average contract values, blah, blah, blah. So I have a bunch of data. And basically the headline numbers tell you, and these are, these are the best of the best software companies in the world currently. Um, obviously there are a bunch waiting to go public probably for the next two years, but these are some of the best companies including Salesforce, HubSpot, Zendesk, Marketo. Um, the average one of those companies from this data set starts their international presence in year four. And typically it's, and the range is very wide, but it's typically at the low end $10 million of annualized revenue up to as much as 40 or $50 million of annualized revenue. So these are fairly well-established businesses that are still growing, you know, at a minimum probably 50 to 75% year over year. This is U.S. start this is before, you, yeah, right? This so we, we, have to almost, we almost have to sort of skew that number a little bit for, let's say, if, if you're a Portuguese company, you're not necessarily going to wait till A ton, yeah. a ton. And so that, that's four years. Now, that doesn't mean that they actually started planning that and executing on it and closing their first customers in year four. A great example of a U.S. company is Mixpanel. They currently don't have any employees abroad. They've raised a lot of money from, I think, Sequoia and Andreessen. But somewhere around, you know, I'm led to believe that somewhere around 20% of their revenues come from international, and they don't have anyone here yet. So they have people who are doing market response, closing sales over the phone in probably New York and San Francisco. And they'll get it to a place where they know exactly how to close them over the phone. They'll know exactly what they look like, and then they can take that reverse engineer it and start selling to those kinds of people once they launch here. So that, that was kind of interesting to get a baseline. Again, that's the best of the best, and the, mostly of the US coming here. Take that, and I'm, I'm kind of three quarters of the way through a study looking at Europe to the US, so the, the inverse of these companies. And the story is a lot different, and I have a bunch of hypotheses, and maybe this is something we can figure out together, but your typical European company, whether they're Swedish, Spanish, Portuguese, British, German, they get to, let's, and again, this is only B2B SaaS companies, the, the, the average one of those will um, open up their first international office and staff it with at least a couple of salespeople or a general manager in the first two to three years, and they do that on much less than $1 million of annual recurring revenue. And so you have to ask yourself, and again, I think you have to control for each country. I think in the UK, the first country we typically go to is the US. Uh, historically, from Sweden, the first country you go to would either be one of your neighbors, Norway, Denmark, Finland, and then typically down to Germany, then over to the UK. If you're Spanish or Portuguese, it's typically from one of the major cities to London, then to the U.S. And so there's kind of this, you know, I call it the manifest destiny of just slowly moving west and ultimately you get to New York or San Francisco. And I think, you know, in Europe it kind of makes sense that if you're a software company, you probably need to be in a major center of trade where, you know, software in the cloud is, is readily adopted, people understand how to buy it, and they have a budget for it. If you're selling cloud-based software in, in 
Portugal, I, I, you know, I don't know how big the, the local market is for that. Also, if you're a founder who's looking to raise VC, you probably have much grander ambitions than just being you know, a local Portuguese cloud vendor. So I think you know, one of the lessons here is that we're going too early. And one of the things I want to drill into once this study is done is the different models, because there's, there's the Zendesk model, which is get to, I think they got to 10,000 customers, launched in Copenhagen, had 30 employees, 30 or 40 employees, briefly had a stint in Boston before moving the entire company to San Francisco. And from what I know, I think 90 or 95% of all of his employees left Copenhagen and actually moved to the U.S. They didn't keep anybody in Copenhagen. They shut the office down, from what I've been told. Um, and then they built out the global head headquarters out of San Francisco, reincorporated the company to the U.S. That's kind of the Israeli model to a degree. I think the Israelis are very good at keeping back office and engineering some products in Israel. And they, they launch almost day one. They launch front office in the U.S., so they're getting to product market fit with two teams, which I think is a very unique skill set. And I've personally never seen a company do that. And then there's the uh, the last model is, let's call it the Mindcast model. They, they filed last week that they're intending to go public on NASDAQ, I guess, later this year. That's a model where, I, you know, I can't remember if they were headquartered and initially launched here or in South Africa, but I believe one of the founders is South Africa. But I believe the biggest market for them uh, to date has been the UK. I know they have the most employees here in terms of anywhere else in the globe. That's a company that built a big base up in Europe, was selling first to the UK, then to other European countries, then went to the US. And I'm pretty sure they had a clever channel sales channel strategy where they went to the US first, then started to build their cost base. So there are all these different models, and it's it's just a lot tougher if you're a European company to figure out which one, which one of those you should run. Some of it is led by ambition, some of it is led by your customers, some of it is led by how much you can raise, how quickly. Some of it is led by your business model. Zendesk got to 10,000 customers before hiring their first salesperson. Mimecast, I'm guessing, probably had to have a salesperson to close their first deal. It's a much more complicated sale. Conversocial needs a sales team. That is sadly not software that people can just go onto their website and, and uh, you know, download the software and, and get going. That's something where you need a salesperson to, to oil that through sales and procurement and the customer service, head of customer service. So I think, you know, we need to think deeply here in Europe about how we design startups very early on, how to go public. And a lot of it is just making sure your product can, can go global from day one and be localized. A lot of it is hiring a very diverse team early on so that if you need to go into France or if you need to go into Germany, you have someone probably in your team who speaks one of those languages who can close the first customers first. And I think um, the big question is really, do we go to the U.S.? Do we move the entire company to the U.S.? If so, when do we do that? If not, do we put a general manager or a VP sales in the U.S.? If so, when do we do that? And these are all things that I don't think we really have the data to, to fully understand. And it may be the case that it's truly a case-by-case -case example. It's not a one-size-fits-all. I mean, sometimes it's easy to say um, that it's a case-by-case -case basis, but other times funding and funding needs kind of dictate one strategy, and that strategy being, I'm going to pick up and I'm going to move to the States. Why? Because the bulk of the follow-on capital is based there. What are your views on, on let's say, tactical internationalization merely for the purposes of raising funds from a U.S. investor? I think it's, I think it's risky, and I do think that could 
have been the case historically when there was less supply here in Europe. I think capital, especially at later stages, is obviously more global now. It's more define later stages. Just so later, I would define you know from a series, definitely series C and onwards. Is I I define that as later stage where U.S. investors are coming in and ha happily you know writing big series C as in Charlie. Yes, and and therefore we're looking at a, a, a gap of international capital anywhere between seed and the B round. De definitely seed and A, very few US investors I think would be, are actively looking here at, at the early stages. You get the occasional B round. Uh, I mean, Qubit is a great example of a company that is, in my opinion, best in class for what they do. They have you know, one or two very large competitors in the US. But I think their their product is far superior. They have, you know, almost no churn, very high contract values, awesome team. They probably could have raised from a, a U.S. lead, but they got Excel Europe, and I think yeah, Excel Europe led their B round here, and they finally at that stage had actually I think late last year in twenty fourteen had opened up their first U.S. office in the New York in New York. And I like the way they built the company because it was it was very patient. They saw that some of their competitors in the U.S. were raising. At, at one stage, one of them had raised, I think, over a hundred million dollars uh, in in one round. Uh, but they were very patient in building out their their customer base. They started ver verticalizing, focusing on new, you know, finance, telco, uh, whatever you know, whatever their verticals may be. And I think it's. I think for when it comes down to it, it's really the founder's decision on whether or not they think that's the right thing for the company. With with Trustpilot, you know, the Series D actually was led by by Vitruvian here in, in London. He could have easily raised capital from a U.S. investor or possibly even a, a late stage Asian you know Asian sovereign wealth fund could have come in. Uh, they have unbelievable SaaS metrics. But they consciously are designing that company. It was always headquartered out of Copenhagen. They had a, a, a big London presence, and slowly over time, we've been they've been shifting their center of gravity over to New York because there's such a huge market opportunity, and we had hardly hardly even penetrated the U.S. market then. So there's a big question I think that those guys will need to ask themselves in the next two years of you know, do we make our headquarters in the U.S.? Do we keep it in Copenhagen? Do we shift it to London? And I think it's very much driven by the founder and the executive team on what they think the best thing is for the company. And it's a, it's an incredibly tough emotional decision as well because a lot of companies, you know, take take take. Uh, so there's TalkDesk out of Portugal, awesome company. DFJ in the Valley backed the, uh, I can't I think it was the B round. Engineering team, product is in Portugal. Front office sales, marketing is all on the West Coast. Do you know when they moved to the West Coast? I, I think they went very early on. It was after the seed rounds. Um, I think they split the team. One of the co-founders stayed. She stayed here, and then I think the CEO went over to the U.S. It was very early on. It was almost like the Israeli model. But what I think is interesting is that's a very personal decision. If you obviously have a family here, your circle of friends, your your network base, it's hard to move over to the U.S. and start talking like an American and you know talking yourself up, which is a very American thing to do. Be self-promotional create a new network base from scratch. It's incredibly hard to do. And all the odds are stacked against you as a European founder to do that. So it's incredibly hard to do. And a lot of people don't do it because they want to stay here. This is home. And I think, you know, Mindcast is a great example of a company that's proved you can build a big software company here. Look at Adyen out of um, 
out of the Netherlands, which is backed by Index, also prove that you can do it here. The, even, the most interesting use case is maybe Automatic, which has created WordPress. That's a distributed team. I don't know how big it is now. That's, they're all over the world. And they have created little micro units um, underneath each, uh, for each product, basically, to, to build that out. Um, maybe that's the future of what international, in quote, inverted commas, looks like in terms of how you build up the team by, by specialization. Who knows? Yeah, I think maybe we can cover this a little bit more when we speak next. But really, I think the the message you're, you're giving is one of unique circumstances for each company, balancing between the needs of the founding team, the needs of the company, and at the same time trying to, to scale up locally before you really expand externally. Yeah. Those are kind and of the takeaways. That's the most important point. And I think that the one overarching question that I think I don't know if there is an answer to it, so I'm not going to like hold you to it. But is is do we need to go to the U.S. to raise capital, right? And and uh, a lot of seed stage companies feel like sometimes the money they can raise in Europe is not large enough vis-a-vis -vis the American counterparts. And you could argue that there's an offset there in terms of the the hiring in the U.S. and the cost of hiring, which we'll cover later in the talent gap. But these are all questions that I think maybe there is no clear answer to. But hopefully we'll cover it in terms of sales and the talent gap when we convene again. So until next time, guys, thank you for joining us.